I just got off a 45 minute call with Josh White. And in all honesty, it could have gone on for another two hours. He is even more fascinated with Corona than I am. And that's saying a lot, given that I've dedicated the last week to making podcasts about the pandemic. But he is general counsel for the promotional products company, Bamco. And he has 40 employees in China and was starting to see the effects of Corona as early as January. And he actually wrote a white paper on the subject in early February. And so this is somebody who's really ahead of the curve of most Americans in terms of his understanding and awareness of what's going on. It just gives him great perspective to go along with his intellect and enthusiasm. And he's just one of those guys that you look up at the clock and you realize you've been talking for hours. And so uh, anybody who is feeling that almost addiction to reading about Corona, learning about Corona, thinking about Corona, talking about Corona, I think we'll really enjoy this conversation. And even if you don't have that addiction, uh, there's a lot to learn in here. And just a smart guy who has thought a lot about it, uh, sharing what he's learned. So please enjoy. Josh. Josh, it's CK. How's it going, man? I'm I'm hunkered down here in New York City. Are you out in LA? I'm actually in Austin, Texas. Okay, so you are proximate to bangers and our mutual friends, Lauren and Ben. Yeah, how do you know Lauren and Ben? So uh, I was actually a bridesmaid in uh, in Lauren's wedding party. Okay. <laughs> what's the what's the backstory there? Did they pick you up off the street, or do you guys know each other? Um, Lauren, Lauren, and I started this um, accountability journal. I think going back to like to 2010, where at the end of each of our days, we try to write the high, the low, and the word to tie it all up. Um, so we just became really close over that uh, kind of shared experience. And so she made me one of her bridesmaids, and I did hair and makeup with the rest of the gals. And then at the awesome. rehearsal dinner, uh, I was able to give a toast that was comprised entirely of Lauren's own words as she uh, fell in love with Ben. So it was a, it was a cool moment for that. And um, it, it's, it's fun being part of that extended Bangers family. Uh, how, how, yeah, how are you folding with the two of them? So Ben is like childhood best friends with one of my best friends from LA. So I went to FC and became friends with uh, Dave Wolf, who you may or may not know. I, I and do. yeah, so Dave's been one of my best buddies for gosh, almost 20 years now. And so when I decided to move out to Austin, which I only did in the last couple months, uh, Dave got, got me and Ben hooked up and, you know, we kind of, they kind of hit it off real quick and we've been fast friends ever since. And, you know, I had a chance to look over um, some of your white papers. And would you get the pronunciation from me correctly? Is it BAMCO or BAMCO? BAMCO. BAMCO. Uh, that's that's yeah. what I thought. So, I mean, you guys seem to have been really ahead of uh, the American curve on COVID. And, yeah. um, you know, I'm, 
I, you were described in 2018 as being sort of an uh, executive utility infield performing a variety of business roles. And so I imagine that, that you are kind of the perfect person for your company uh, to be dealing with the variety of fallout from, from this coronavirus. Yeah, I mean, look, we got we have a lot of we're in um an industry that is not exactly uh, replete with super talented people, and we happen to be a company that it's just you know our industry doesn't attract with a lot of MIT grads, but our company our company does. I mean, maybe not MIT grads, but we happen to have a lot of really smart folks on our team, and it's one of the reasons we've sort of grown a lot more quickly than our competitors, and and we succeed a lot more than our competitors. Um, but you know, I get kind of ta- you know because of that. Um, diversity of skill sets. You know, I'm a, I'm a lawyer by training, so I'm I'm pretty analytical uh, and and a pretty pretty decent writer, and I can write really really quickly. Um, and so, you know, I dove into this. You know, w- let me take a step back. So we have about 40 employees on the ground in China, in Guangzhou, and so we had been hearing from before Chinese New Year that like, hey, this is bad and it's worse than people are saying and it's really disruptive and it's just a big problem and it's going to get worse. And so we had really good on-the-ground intel, um, both from like people we know, from factories, from our employees, and it just like directly impacted our business. And we also just have relationships. So like one of my good friends owns a few pizza restaurants out in China. And so talking to him about like everything getting shut down and his business going down to you know, 10% of what it was, we had really good sort of insight into the malfeasance of the Chinese government, of the cover-up of what was going on, the extent of the spread, how disruptive it was to, you know, the, 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 the moves meant to mitigate the spread of the virus, how disruptive that was to life and supply chains and business. And so we knew, or we had a good sense that, like, this was going to get worse and it was going to be massively disruptive to business generally, and that if we wanted to sort of do the best we could do by our employees and customers, we needed to get ahead of the messaging. And so we, um, in early February, we wrote that white paper. I wrote that white paper, and we started sharing that with customers and just explaining to them, like, hey, guys, there's a thing. It's called coronavirus. It's really disruptive to supply chains in China. We think it's going to get a lot worse, um, and we should start preparing now because our staff is all working from home, and they're going to be working from home for the foreseeable future. They still are working from home two months later. Um, and so, you know, we just kind of dove into the, into the situation and tried to become as knowledgeable as we could. And as I think anyone who's like paying attention now recognizes as like morbid and dark as it is, it's also the most fascinating thing that's happened in our lifetime. Um, you it's know, extraordinary. If you have a, yeah. She's a, if you have a curious mind, um, it's impossible to look away because it just continues to evolve. And it's, it's, it, it itself, the, the, the catastrophe is like a living organism. You know, people ask me all the time because we've been on top of this for two months, like, Hey, what's going to happen next? And the thing that's most interesting is you don't know because it kind of, well, it entirely depends on what we do, right? It's entirely dependent on how people collectively how countries what actions they take and what what people on an individual level do and so like if you could tell me with with 100 certainty this is what the countries are going to do and this is what the population within those countries are, are going to do i could tell you with some degree of certainty 
because we remove those variables, what those outcomes will be, what the, what the rate of spread will be. Like we, we could kind of get into it, but you don't know, like you don't know, you know, when, when different counties are going to get to a place where they have shelter in place orders. And, you know, you don't know whether the theory of seasonality is going to prove true or not. You know, you don't know whether like some of the, some of the therapeutic remedies are going to work or not. So there's like a lot of variables, but the biggest variable is, is, human action and like what a fucking fascinating thing it is to try to predict the future when you can't predict human behavior so what are you seeing in austin you know in your in your immediate community uh yeah is it cause for concern is it cause for optimism or is it somewhere in between there's definitely not a lot of optimism um you know i think it's it, austin from what i can tell so most of my friends and family are back in southern california and Austin seems to be a few days behind um, San Diego and, and LA where, where sort of my closest folks are. Um, I guess my brother's up in the Bay area and they're maybe a day or two ahead of LA, but Austin is, it's definitely shifting and it's shifting quickly. Like I, I think it is everywhere else in the country. Um, but people are, it's interesting. I mean, I, like I think the human element of this whole situation is the most fascinating part. So people are definitely changing their behavior. They've started being, you know, panic buying last week. I, I definitely see a lot, you know, we've been following the traffic patterns from, from sort of peak rush hour to what it is now. And you can tell just by looking at the numbers that, uh, that the congestion is way down. So there are a lot fewer people on the roads and people are basically sort of hunkering down. Um, the thing that's fascinating to me is, is the human psychological side of this. So I've been taking walks around my neighborhood and in ways that I've never seen before, every time I pass a person on the street, they look at me and make eye contact and wave and say hello, Interesting. Um, which is, which is a really cool, you know, everyone, there's so much uncertainty. No one knows what to do, what to feel, what to expect. Um, you know, they feel scared. And I think when people feel scared, they tend to sort of freeze in place. And we've seen that from, from a business perspective, um, you know, our, some of our suppliers and a lot of our competitors are just kind of like standing still, like not doing anything because that fear and uncertainty paralyzes them. But in Austin, I mean, I don't see a lot of, I've yet to see any bad behavior. I've yet to see anyone, um, you know, trying to, to, to take advantage or exploit or do anything, um, you know, inappropriate. I do think people are like stocking up on, everything you might imagine they would stock up on, which is, you know, beans and bullets and, and everything else. Right. Um, you know, I had a buddy who was telling me he was at Academy sports, which is like the big sporting goods store. And 50% of the people there were just buying guns, um, which you would think, you know, in Texas, there's enough guns already that people own, but, um, you know, like in, in a situation like this, with as much uncertainty as there is, there's no, there are no foxhole atheists and there are no, um, uh, gun control advocates in a situation where you feel like uh, society might fall apart. You know, you, you spoke about the understanding of a culture of a country is perhaps slightly predictive and you, you could make better guesses oh, yeah. uh, if you were able to, uh, you know, get a, a pulse read on the populace. Um, you know, we have New York City, which is on this kind of quasi-partial quarantine, we have San Francisco. Which what, is, what, what is the state of New York right now? Is it is it shelter in place? Have you guys done that yet? We are not technically shelter in place, but okay. 
all restaurants. For all intents and purposes, yeah. Yeah, you know, like like restaurants are shut down. Uh, they are only doing delivery. Um, you know, bars are shut yeah. down. One of the changes has been if you have a liquor license, you can do alcohol delivery now. So bars yeah. are trying to... So you guys are to... exactly, you're exactly where we're at in Austin right now, which is like you can do liquor delivery, bars and restaurants are shut down. Um, I actually don't know if, if, if all non-essential businesses are shut down. I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, but I think shelter in place is sort of the next next step in that process. And when we talk about things being predictable, that's the interesting thing. I've been saying for a while now, you can put, kind of call your shot and say like, okay, first they'll cancel big events and then they'll say no events of more than a thousand people. Then arbitrarily they make that number 250 and then they say it's 50. And then they say, you know, close down all bars and restaurants and then shelter in place. Like, there's a very predictable pattern that all of these things follow. And so guys like me just say like, okay, if you're going to get to shelter in place anyways, like let's just get there. Let's get it done with. And how do you square that with reports coming out of Florida with all the young spring breakers and and that sort of behavior, that sort of culture, and, and what it might portend for our ability to flatten the curve as a country? Well, I'd say young people are stupid and selfish. Um, you know, like that's that's not new. That's not that's not unique to um, Generation Z, which is what I guess they are. Um, you know, there's, there's been, one of the things that's been fascinating to me has been the sort of acceptance curve, right? I, you know, early on, because we were sort of early, early to the party of, of saying like, Hey, it's going to be a big problem. Um, it was very frustrating talking to folks who like, didn't see what we saw or didn't see the risk or the harm or the problem hit our way. And you get really annoyed or I would get really annoyed and be like, how do you not get this? Or how are you so stubborn? Or why are you so dumb? Or whatever it is. And, and, and I've come to appreciate um, that it's not, it's not, um, it's not like a, it's not an intelligence gap there. It's just people get to a place of acceptance of reality at different speeds and everyone basically gets there. So I've had so many conversations with so many different people who, you know, totally changed their position on this thing within the course of a few days or a week. And I've seen enough people completely transform in their position to know, okay, it's just a process and people get there at different points of time. I do think from a persuasion perspective, we have failed to adequately message to, to young folks in this country, right? They're like, well, you know, like we all see those clips on Twitter where it's, you know, some, some 20 year old spring breakers like, ah, I don't care. I just need to drink and have fun. Um, and I think we've, we've failed at coming up with the sort of a maximally effective persuasion, persuasion messaging of like appealing to people's ego and desire to feel altruistic, right? There's no shortage of young people who want to, to, to sort of virtue signal and feel like they're the good, virtuous, altruistic people. Um, and you see that sort of in, in social media and politics all the time, right? Like that's a, that's a pretty common feature of campus life is young people who are like, I'm the good person because I posted this thing on Twitter. Um, I think we can appeal to people's inherent sort of solipsism and, and ego and, and, and persuade them that like, yeah, like if you really want to be a good person, stay the fuck home, stay the fuck home. If you really want to be this, this person that you, you know, your ego is craving for you to be. Um, and instead, I think we've just kind of failed in the messaging in terms of, yeah, you know, if you're under 60, then it's not that big of a risk, but like, you know, it's, it's dangerous to old people. And, and I think we have this weird culture where 
you know, um, we don't really value our, our elders, um, and it feels really divorced from our own reality. Right, if you're a spring breaker in Fort Lauderdale and your grandma's in Indianapolis, you say like, ah, you know, my grandma's in Indianapolis. Like, if I get it, I'll be fine, and I'm not really doing anything anyways. But it's like that's not really how this works, right? Like, we are all sort of contributing to the spread or to the mitigation of flattening the curve. And young people are, you know, they seem to not be there yet. Um, and I'm not sure exactly how to get them there other than, than appealing to, to ego and a, a sense of self-importance. I haven't asked this question to many people, but you, t- you were talking about yeah. the acceptance curve. Um, how do you think that politics maps onto that? Um, and is it something I love that's... that question. I love yeah. that question. I mean, I think, that, I think there's good data on it. Like, I think we've seen for gosh and i have no idea why but it, it i haven't and i haven't looked at it closely but but it looks like you know folks of a conservative bent are a little bit more resistant um than than folks of a more left-leaning bent although i don't know <laughs> i looked at it recently um i don't know do you have a thought on that i, I mean i've just been listening and reading fairly narrow i think um either more Liberal media, you know, the New York Times or Ezra Klein yeah. or, um, you know, I, I thought one interesting take was from uh, Ryan Russillo of The Ringer in talking about how people are treating uh, Corona uh, like sports fans and sports yeah. fans are only going to uh, look for um, media that confirm to their, their rooting beliefs. And so if, if yeah. you're a... You know, if you're a LeBron fan, you don't want to you don't want to accept anything that that makes LeBron look bad. And so, you know, he yeah. was, he was equating that with, hey, you know, I, I'm Corona makes Trump look bad, so I'm not going to believe in anything negative about about Corona because it yeah. ultimately it, it hurts my team. And I thought that was a, an interesting take. I, I'm a little bit more skeptical of that. I mean, I think the, the numbers appear to bear that out. I don't know how long that's going to last or if that still happens to be the case. I mean, I think, you know, in, particularly in recent days, the Trump administration has obviously come around and, and has not pulled any punches in, in their communication about the severity and seriousness of the situation. Um, and, and I have a pretty uh, intellectually diverse set of friends, and, and I don't see any correlate. Well, very little correlation between um, political ideology and, and how serious they think the situation is. I mean, to me, the more interesting thing, I mean, the, the, the thing that gives me sort of hope here is the fact that like, this is not a political issue, right? It's not a, it's not a binary thing. And it breaks, you know, it breaks, it breaks my heart to think about how much unnecessary sort of consternation there has been in this country over the last, couple of years, last five years of like this really frivolous demonization of people who think a little bit differently than you do about things that don't really matter all that much, right? I believe in this kind of tax policy, or even if you think it does matter, I think people have, have gotten very, very comfortable in drawing these broad sweeping conclusions about other people and their character and what type of person they are, because they have a, like a slight difference in a policy thing. It's like, these are the good people or we're the good people. They're the bad people. Um, and these sort of sanctimonious um, opinions about people being different than them. When the reality is like, we're not that different, you know, like, sure. We might have a different idea where well, we, you know, you read the New York times and I read the wall street journal, but like, who gives a damn? And I think 
in this situation, it's, it, if there's one thing that, you know, I would hope comes out of it, it's realizing like, oh yeah, people are all basically the same. We're all basically decent. We all basically want the same things. Um, and, and this, all this freaking effort we've, we've poured into demonizing people who think a little bit differently than, than we do over the last few years was really stupid um, and really, really wasted. For me, the clearest example of that is the tension between, say, Senator Warren's camp and Senator uh, Bernie Sanders' camp and the vitriol that went in between you know, two groups that you would think are fairly politically aligned and, and have a lot of the same sort they of progressive are, they, ideals. Elizabeth Warren basically stole his entire platform, you know, like, you know, to, to, be, to pretend like they're just like these dramatically different things, like. They're not like, she, you know, she's, she's, a, you know, whatever. Like they're basically the same. They basically believe the same thing if she believes what she said, but her platform is basically his platform. Um, but I think, I, I, look, I think you could be a Bernie supporter and, and you could be a Trump supporter. You could be a totally opposite end of the spectrum and you're still basically a decent person. I think like how you vote, what party you're registered for. I actually don't think it says very much about your moral compass or your character or your decency or what you are, or who you are as a person. I know that's a radical statement in, in the year 2020, but, but, you know, I, I think we've allowed ourselves to get consumed with this sort of like 24 seven WWE style, um, you know, entertainment part of politics, which is just kind of dumb. Like it, politics, I, I know we all think it's like the end all be all of everything, but it's just not like, it's not, it, it's not that important. And it, it doesn't really reflect people's character that much, at least in my opinion. And I think you can be a real piece of shit and be a Bernie supporter. And you can be a, a real lovely person and be a Trump supporter and vice versa. And I think basically people are decent. I think we basically want the same things in life, community, friendship, a sense of purpose. And I think we all basically want the same things for each other. And I, I don't know, we've just, we've just squandered this, these last five years because it makes us feel sanctimonious and important to demonize people who think a little bit differently than us. And, and as I look at this thing, it's like, Oh yeah, no, that was stupid. That was a waste of time. Like that, you know, we're, we're actually are all basically on the same page. And so here's something I, you know, going back to our earlier conversation is Corona an opportunity to make your notion, this idea that we're all pretty much the same, which you know, for some is a radical notion. Do you think that, yeah. do you think that Corona is going to uh, help make your thesis uh, more palatable or, or, or more obvious to Americans? Or do you think it's going to actually drive polarization? And, and I, ask I don't this think it's based... going to drive. I... Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, and I, you know, I asked this based on the fact that you've, you know, really been in contact with people who are living through this, um, you know, <laughs> temporarily like weeks and months ahead of us with your with yeah. your, you know your colleagues in China and uh, I'm yeah I'm really curious to know your thoughts on on polarization and corona and in your radical notions of how similar we all are yeah I mean so it's interesting so so China's not a great case study for political polarization because um, you don't have the luxury of being polarized in China um, you can be a communist or you can be dead uh, or in a prison camp one of the two. Um, so, you know, I think that's one of the things people don't appreciate, like how terrible the country, uh, or no, sorry, how terrible the government China has. Um, lovely country filled with lovely people with a terrible sort of authoritarian government. Um, and there's, you don't have the luxury of, of being 
anti-communist in, in China. Um, so I don't think it's a good sort of representative case study of, of what will happen here. But I do think, I don't think it'll get more polarized. I'd be surprised if that happened because I, I think it's a, you know, the, that sort of political polarization is a luxury of comfort that um, comes about when you're, you know, when you have an abundance and like, you know, getting really angry about what your uncle posts on Facebook is, is, is a luxury of abundance that I think, you know, we don't really have right now. Like maybe people get annoyed, but like, that's more of a distraction than, than sort of an existential threat. And so the more existentially um, disruptive the situation is, I think the more we look at it and say like, yeah, I don't really care. Like, I'm just exhausted. I'm just exhausted about your opinions on the latest tweet or whatever it is. Like, I don't care. Like, are you safe? Are you well? Are you stressed out? Are your kids doing okay? How's your mom doing? Um, And I think the more existential pressure we come under, I think the less polarization there will be. Um, And and I think that's probably how, how it will go. Um, do I think we're going to solve political polarization in this country? Absolutely not. There's too much, there's too much money and power and influence to be gained by convincing people that they're radically different and they have polar opposite desires and outcomes that they want for this country. Like I think that you know, like the the model of how media works today essentially operates on that premise, right? The more we can convince people that they're different, that those people over there are bad, or that you're good if you watch this show or buy this magazine or whatever the hell it is um that that seems to be sort of central to the to the business model of of politics and media in our world today and as long as there's there's incentive there people will go wherever the incentive is but i think people can tune it out i think people can look at it and be like oh yeah that's bullshit yeah like i'm not going to be drawn into this this is this is so silly and it's such a waste of time and you know what my 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 neighbor with the trump sticker on his car like yeah he he, he brought over like a bunch of hand sanitizer and he made sure my kids were, were taken care of. And, you know, my, my, my other neighbor who's the Elizabeth Warren supporter, like she gave us, you know, whatever, an N95 mask because she had some extra and you can realize like, Oh yeah, there's some basic decency and humanity in all people. And these, 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 these football team colors that we've been wearing to, as, you know, as, as our way of understanding the world is just a really narrow minded um, and simplistic view of the world that doesn't really account for the nature of humanity. And it's interesting to go back to that football team metaphor, given that there is going to be a competition the first week of November with the election. And, and I'm curious to know if you have, uh, you know, again, those predictive models, um, if yeah. you have any thoughts about how this will uh, affect the election, if, if there is a yeah. desire from... You know, American populace that may have had a rising abundance in 2016 and could really enjoy marinating in the vitriol of polarization, if that's kind of taken away yeah. from us, uh, will, yeah. will, will they look for something more centrist? You know, does that play to a Biden strength who, you know, just wants yeah. to come across as a nice guy? Or, or is there something is there something maybe more comforting in somebody like Trump who just projects this confidence uh, and, you know, strength, even if it doesn't really rest on quote unquote facts or not? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the 
problem for Trump is that his projection of confidence is, is belied by how badly they, the federal government has bungled the response to coronavirus. Um, you know, and that and that's down to the CDC level and, and, you know, a lot of sort of administrative branches beyond just the White House. But it's, 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 you lose a little bit of credibility. Um, and I, I don't think his administration has done a good job on, on this situation at all. So I think sounding really confident when your performance really undermines that, I think is, is going to not resonate particularly well. But I, I think to your deeper point, I think the more the more sort of disruptive and catastrophic it is, the more that plays to a message of stability, right? Like I think one of the reasons you saw Bernie um, basically, I mean, I think he was done already, but in the last primaries, he just got kind of blown out of the water. It's like, he's a radical. Yeah. It's like, he's basically a radical revolutionary. Let's upset the apple cart and like, you know, destroy everything in our path. And everyone's like, yeah, we've got enough destruction going on right now. Like we have like, like just a little bit of stability, just a little bit of normalcy, like just make it boring. Um, that would work for me right now. And I think that's kind of like, I think you saw that in the, in the results of the most recent primaries. And I think that obviously plays to Biden's strengths and, and what he's, what he's at least branding himself as. So yeah, I, I think, you know, Trump just a lot, you know, this whole situation, I, before uh, the COVID situation sort of unfolded, I would have said, uh, I would have bet on Trump to win re-election in, in 2020. Now I would, I would be pretty confident betting against it because, you know, his biggest selling point was the strength of the economy and, and, and how things were going there. Um, and, and obviously the economy was doing extraordinarily well. Uh, but he was a, he's a disruptive force in his own right. And then, so you look at, you lose the benefit of a really strong economy and then you have a, a pretty pretty badly bungled response, at least early on, to to coronavirus situation. And then you have all the instability that's in, it's baked into the system. Even by November, I think there's going to be a lot of people who are feeling the pain, who lost their jobs, lost their businesses, and you just don't have that benefit of like um, you know wanting to maintain an incumbency incumbency because there's not the same sort of you know desire not to you know, not to, not to mess anything up. It's like, yeah, it already got messed up. So let's bring in the, let's bring in the guy who's like, at least, you know, Joe Biden's basically a walking sack of potatoes at this point, but like, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, let's be honest, like, you know, I don't, I don't know if everyone sees it. Right. But I see Joe Biden. I'm like, Oh, he's like, seems to basically have dementia. Um, and I, I don't know if we're allowed to talk about that, but like, you know, every time the guy opens his mouth, it's like, wow. Like, I don't know, I don't know what how fast his fastball is, but it's about twelve miles an hour these days. Um, but even then, it's like, okay, like, you know, he'll bring in some technocrats around him, or they'll they'll prop him up like weekend at Bernie style, and um, you know, they'll the 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 branding at least is uh, stable, and you know, good old Uncle Joe, whatever the hell they're going to sell us on. Um, and I think that benefits him in in in, in really sort of shaky and and kind of wild times like this. And so forecasting out are you, you're, you're seeing people still really feeling the pain come November. I mean, just, just oh, yeah. in terms of like, how, <laughs> when do you think the pain's going to end? Dude, I don't know. Um, I really don't know. Um, I, you know, that, and, and that goes back to that point of, it really depends on the unpredictable human variable here, right? There's so much, that is sort of in our hands to, to affect. And I don't know what 
humans are going to do, let alone what entire countries are going to do. Um, you know, I don't know if kids are going to keep going on spring break. And, and frankly, I don't know if it's going to work, right? We're talking about mitigation and containment and flattening the curve. But like, do we know for certainty that once you get coronavirus and you develop antibodies and you can't get it again, like, I don't think we do. Do we know that uh, the infection rates are going to drop when warmer weather comes around? I, I don't think we do. In fact, I, I don't think it will. Um, you know, there's so many unknown variables about this virus and about what human beings are going to do in response to it. Like, it's really difficult to project. It's why it is so fascinating. Um, but do I think it's good? Do I think we're still going to be feeling this in November? Absolutely. You know, I think the craziest thing about this situation is what was sort of unfathomable a day ago or two days ago becomes sort of matter of fact today, right? A couple of days ago, we were talking about like shelter in place orders for two weeks. It was like, no way. They're not going to tell people to self-quarantine for two weeks. And then a couple of days later or a day later, whatever it was, you know, Trump comes out and is like, yeah, like, I think this might go on until... July or August. And then the next day, the New York Times comes out and published an article about a study that says like, this is probably going to, not probably, this could last for 18 months. And we could see a, like a number of reinfection cycles in which he's like, okay, this is going on for 18 months until like a vaccine is developed, if they can actually do, successfully develop a vaccine, which is again, another unknown variable. Um, what does that mean? Does that mean we're all just kind of like using Zoom meeting and working from home for the next 18 months and the entire economy shuts down for the next 18 months? If so, we're living in a very different world. We're living in a very different yes. country, in a very different world um, that, that will be completely unrecognizable to what it was before this. Frankly, if it lasts for four months, which it easily could, you're looking at a totally different thing, right? If, if, what, what is it? March now? So March, April, May, June, July. So yeah, if it goes until July, which I don't think anyone is, it would be shocked as of today if, if you told them, yeah, this is good, we're going to all be sort of on lockdown until July, um, yeah, you're, you're sure as shit are going to be feeling that in November. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how long you can keep people locked down. At some point, I mean, they're just trying to make decisions based off of the best available evidence and the best available information, but there's not that much information. Like, we know, I have a lot of optimism because we look at what happened in China and South Korea, and we seem to have a pretty good indication that if you lock stuff down, um, and do the degree of testing that they've done in South Korea, that you can really slow down that spread and basically contain it. Um, but that's a, still a big assumption. That's not a fact. And we might go through two months of, uh, you know, essentially total lockdown or total quarantine and get to the end of it and be like, oh, yeah, like there's a lot, there's still community transmission and you lock down, you know, Tacoma, Washington, but it popped up in, in Santa Clara and, and, you know, we're just reinfecting each other over and over again. I'm like, that's not going to work. We're just going to need to get herd immunity. And uh, even if that overwhelms the hospital and we have a lot more people die than otherwise would like, Oh, well, (laughs) um, that might be, that might be where it goes. You know, you might go through a two month or three month quarantine period and then realize like, Oh yeah, that wasn't the right move, but we won't, you won't really know until it's over. You won't really know until after the fact. It's it's really that uncertainty that is. Um, I, I think I think you said it best. It makes this so fascinating from so many different aspects, yeah. from the human psychology to the economics to epidemi epidemiologically. Um, yeah, we're all we're, we're, we're all uh, we're all backyard epidemiologists now, right? Like, yeah, we all of us are like, oh yeah, the R not. Like, we all know these terms. <laughs> 
where like two weeks ago, oh. like we like we we didn't know any of this stuff, and we're all so full of shit that we're just like, <laughs> oh yeah, you know, transmissibility and case fatality rate, and you know, it's all this stuff. No, we don't know what we're talking about, but it's it's so interesting, it's so engrossing because boy, are we living it in real time? And it's you talk about human connectivity. There's never been a thing where we are so interconnected in such a sort of transformative, impactful visceral event is this right now right you talk to people i've never met you before you're in brooklyn i'm in austin like i feel like i know you already because we're like what is this this is fucking crazy like what are we going through you know um and there's something really amazing about it and not in a good way but like what a what a crazy you know we'll talk to our kids about this and they'll have no idea what it was like to live through this period of just like radical uncertainty and maybe we get out of it. Like maybe we get out, you know, we do, we do like a total lockdown. I actually do think there's a good chance this happens. We do basically a total lockdown and um, five days after that gets instituted, the cases start plateauing. And then, you know, a month or two after that, we basically get to a place where China is now where we're like, yeah, like there's, there's not really a lot of, there's no new community transmission and we pretty much got this thing nipped in the bud. And then we get to, you know, August or July and we're like, yeah, that's, that was a pain in the butt, but you know, let's get back to work and let's go build, rebuild what we lost. Um, I think there's a really good chance that that's what happens, but, but I, I don't know. Uh, but, or we could totally transform society as we know it forever. And, the, you know, we'll talk to our kids 20 years from now and be like, oh yeah, you should have seen what it was like back in 2019. Like, boy, those were the days. <laughs> those things were really nice before uh, the whole world went to shit. I was going to let you go, but I have to ask one more question now that I meant to yeah, ask at the it. beginning. Yeah. What are the chances that the reports coming out of China that there, that there are no known new infections? What are the chances yeah. of that? That's that's just complete BS. Um, what are the chances that it's complete BS? It's a great question. Um, I am, um, to my own detriment, I'm a very outspoken critic of the Chinese government. Um, you know, I've been told I should be less critical of them. Um, and, and yet I, I think all people of, of moral conscience have a responsibility to speak out about the, the inherent evil of, of the con- communist Chinese regime. Uh, and there's a lot of things that people should figure out, you know, should do some research into in terms of uh, prison camps in Xinjiang and um, involuntary organ uh, removal and, and all sorts of crazy stuff out there. But uh, if you just asked me, I would say like, oh, it's really high because I don't trust anything the Chinese government says, um, and I think they're inherently dishonest. But there are people that I trust who I think are smarter than I am, who pay close attention to this, who, are, who and I haven't, I haven't taken a deep dive into this, but they seem to think that the numbers are, are, are pretty accurate and that the, the WHO has sort of done a deep dive there and they seem to believe those reports. Uh, so the answer is I don't know. Like, I don't really trust anything that comes out of the Chinese government. Um, but I've talked to people who seem to think that in this one instance that the, the, the reports are believable. So I, I think it's possible. I think it's possible that they're, that they're telling the truth. I think there are boots on the ground by the WHO who are paying attention to it. And I do think I'm convinced that the numbers out of South Korea are correct. And, um, and South Korea has obviously got this thing contained. And I think that has a lot to do with their really widespread testing. Um, you know, cause they, they have a pretty good sense of who has it and who doesn't, but Boy, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know. <laughs> I, I, I hope, man, I, hope, I really hope they're right. I really hope the numbers are right. And I have no reason other than just my inherent skepticism of that government to, to believe that they're wrong. 
Um, and and if if I didn't know people who I trust who said like, yeah, I think they're I think they're basically telling the truth, then I would say like, oh yeah, they're full of it. But I don't know. I'm just a guy. <laughs> just a guy. What do I know? Well, you're your fascination with with COVID, the work that you've done for BAMCO in terms of the white papers, the fact that you really were ahead of the, we've talked about the acceptance curve and the contagion curve, but you're, uh, you're very far along in the knowledge curve, uh, just given the fact that you were so plugged into what was happening in China back in January. And this yeah. is all just to say how much I've enjoyed this conversation because I, yeah, <laughs> I started this podcast in part because uh, I just want to talk to people that uh, were, were feeling it and engage with it and because and, I think that I had a sick fascination with it. Um, yeah, and so, I don't think it's a sick fascination. I mean, I, I'll, I'll interject there because I do think it's the most fascinating thing that's ever happened in our lifetimes, at the very least. You know, we, we are living through history in a really remarkable way. And because we are the ones living through it, it feels more interesting than if we were living through World War II, right? Or, you know, because it's like, oh, well, this is visceral. It's real. I'm feeling it. I'm seeing it. Um, and just the highly variable nature and unpredictable nature and potentially disruptive nature of all of this and, and the human elements. And, and for me, I think the, the sort of emotional stories and trauma that are, that are sort of intertwined in all of it, um, I, I think you'd be crazy if you don't find it fascinating. I, or you're just like, I don't know, on, on drugs or something. Like, I don't know how you could be living through this thing, seeing it unfold, seeing it rapidly evolve every single day. It's just a new, big, different thing. They were like, I didn't even, I didn't even think about that. Oh my God, that's crazy. Um, yeah, I, I don't think there's anything morbid about that fascination. I, you know, I, I, I hope it's just like a hobby that we all have for a couple months, and then you know, a couple months from now, we look back and we're like, man, that was crazy. That's was enough. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that it will be, be a blip. But right now, it doesn't appear that that, that is the its trajectory. Uh, uh, What's the most common? Let me ask you one question. What's the most yeah. common emotional reaction you've sort of found in the course of these conversations? That's a that's an interesting question. It depends on the day. So you know something okay. that I think lined up uh, to me in an interesting way with what you said earlier was I was on a call this morning with a cardiologist on his way to the hospital at which he works and he was talking about how in the medical community there is so much information flying around much of which he has no idea if it's true or not wow. and yeah. it, you know there because right now with the emails and the texts information is just flying so quickly and medical guys i mean he's he's a cardiologist he is so interested in the scientific method, but because of the speed of which this has moved, he, you can't do he, it. Yeah, there, there's no there's no methodology in terms of his understanding. I mean, he was talking to his family in San Francisco in L.A. last week, saying, "Hey, it's not that big of a deal," <laughs> and. Yeah. You know, he, this morning he predicted that they that his hospital had two days worth left of supplies to deal with Corona. Yeah. And he was talking about quote unquote flexing the rules that that are you know standards. And 
And so when somebody who is that scientific, that rigorous, that, uh, you know, methodological, I can't pronounce anything right now. Um, yeah, you're doing is, right. <laughs> When somebody like that is like throwing their hands up and being like, we're doing our best, but we really don't know. Um, I yeah. think that that kind of sums up the, the word to describe everybody is uncertain. There are yeah. very, very, very few people that are certain about what's going to happen. In that uncertainty, yeah. um, people have different um, tolerances for uncertainty. Some kind of can lean into it and kind of enjoy it. For others, it's really uncomfortable. Um, but that yeah, is, it's paralyzing, right? I mean, that's what we've yeah. seen is that it, people get paralyzed in place into inaction. Um, and that's a, a totally normal and acceptable reaction but at some point it's incumbent incumbent upon all of us to do the most important thing i think you can do which is which is get very clear about that which is within your control and that which is not within your control and you figure out what's within your control and you do the best you can in those areas and i think we all have a lot within our control i think this is an amazing opportunity and test for all of us to figure out what our character is to understand what our values are to figure out how do we step up? How do we elevate who we are, how we treat people, how we respond in the face of adversity, right? It's really easy to be a good person, to be a decent person, to be a kind person when everything is great, when everything is easy, when you're not stressed, when you're not scared, like that's fine. Cool. But I, I think this is an amazing test and, it, and, and I have an abundance of faith in people and I have an abundance of faith in the American people and I have an abundance of faith in this species to get really creative, to get really innovative, to get really resourceful and to start finding solutions. And the thing you know, I'll say is, I actually think we're a couple of weeks away from some of those cracks of sunshine coming through. I think right now where we're at, it's a really dark, it's a really scary, it's a really uncertain place and it's overwhelming and it's gonna get continually more overwhelming every single day. I think the next two weeks are gonna freaking suck. Um, and then I think you're gonna start seeing little blips little blips of positivity, little rays of sunshine, little parts of, of, of uh, innovation, a whole kind of, of resource. It's like, I know that's what our company is doing. Like we have great leadership here. And so instead of just kind of sitting around and being like, oh, well, you know, we're victims of circumstance. We'll wait to see what happens. I've never seen our team pull together and get as resourceful and creative and thoughtful and intentional as we are right now. And I think that's what good people do. Good people say, okay, adversity, challenge, that's not in my control. Here's what I control. Let me go do that thing. Um, and, and I think you're going to see a lot of really cool stuff come about and a lot of great sort of human action um, manifest itself in the next few weeks and in the coming months. And I think there will be some amazing, amazing stories that get told um, that basically all of us have, have, a, have a role to play. And I think that's going to be in, in, in the heart of tragedy. I think some beauty is going to be emerging here pretty soon. Josh, I can't wait to talk to you again in a week or two, and <laughs> our, our our mutual fascination is going to, I think, propel these conversations forward. And thank yeah. you so much for for carving out forty five minutes to talk to me tonight. This is this is yeah, been, this has been a, such a highlight of my day. Yeah, I appreciate it. Hopefully, we talk again, and uh, I'll be able to point to a couple of things and be like, "See, like they came up with that that therapeutic treatment or." 
you know, the, you know, look at how these people pulled together. Or, I don't know. I think there's going to be some really cool things that come about. Um, and, and I would encourage anyone who listens to this to think about what they can do, what they can control and how they can be, you know, the, the highest sort of uh, uh, expression of, the, of their core values. Like, go do it now. This is the time to be decent. This is the time to take care of your neighbors. It's time to call your friends and family and be good. Um, I think it's, it's, it's a great opportunity to step up and be the person that you always wanted to be. I love that. Have a good night. Cool. Yeah, man. Take care. You too. Thanks. <laughs> of course. Thanks for the conversation. All right. Bye.